Welcome to Pushing Beyond the Obvious and I am your host Mukesh Gupta, author of the world's first business poem, Your Startup Mentor. This is a show where I bring you ideas and insights from some of the best minds in the world so that you can be a better entrepreneur and grow your business. Today's episode of Pushing Beyond the Obvious is brought to you by Skillshare, an online learning platform with over 18,000 plus classes on business, marketing, technology and many more. Get two months of Skillshare for free at rmukeshgupta.com slash learn. Uh, hi, David. Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Welcome back, I must say. I mean, you are probably the third guest who is back again on the show. And it's such a cool, cool coincidence that the first time you were on the show, it was episode 9. Uh, the second time you are on the show, it's season 2, episode 9. No, that that is that is so cool. I I thought maybe there'd be more people that have, have come back, and maybe it, that's what it is, is. The second season is just checking in with everyone again. But this is even cooler. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you know, for people um, uh, who have not listened to the earlier show, and uh, uh, you know, for people who uh, also are f- new listeners for the show, and you've done a lot as well from the past uh, when we did the episode. So can you just introduce yourself and the body of work that you've done? Uh, and then we can proceed from there. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, my name is Dave Burkus. I um, I kind of look at the through line through all of my work is that I uh, am trying to bring good ideas out of the ivory tower and and bring them to the corner office or to uh, the corner co-working space, what, whatever it is. Um, but bringing people who practice. So there's a lot of really, really good research in, in management, in psychology, in social science that can inform how we can, I like to say, work smarter and live better. But a lot of it's written in academic jargon. And so for the last um, almost 10 years, it's been my mission to strip down the academic jargon and present ideas in a way that is easy for people to apply to their lives, to their businesses, uh, etc. And so uh, the, the most common way to do that is it with, uh, you know, three books, uh, Myths of Creativity, which is, I think, what we talked about the first time mostly, um, Under New Management, and a new one coming out May 1st uh, called Friend of a Friend, which is about sort of networking, making better connections, all things that uh, you need at any stage in your career, but especially when you're in that startup phase. Interesting. And um, uh, congratulations, by the way, for being part of the Thinkers 50. How did that happen? Oh, thanks. Um, I have no idea. No, um, I was I was blessed to sort of sh- literally show up on their radar, as the, the metaphor is. Um, in 2015, they have this sort of radar um, category of people that I think, you know, these are people that aren't uh, aren't ranked, but we're paying attention to them, we're watching them, etc. And, um, they don't, you know, a lot, of, a lot of good things happened since then. Under New Management came out, it really sort of resonated, a lot of the ideas in that resonated with where a lot of people in the in the West, at least, were talking about, and um, so we had we were fortunate enough to have like the chapter on salary transparency uh, ended up being adapted into a TEDx talk that then went live on TED.com because they it was spoke to that sort of wage gap issue that a lot of the U.S. and Europe is trying to deal with right now. So we got you know we we got really lucky in that we sort of had the right ideas from the ivory tower presented to practitioners at the right time. Um, and I think that that kind of combination is good. I, I'm super blessed to do it, and I think it's nothing but. I mean, 
I obviously try and work as hard as I can, but I have to be honest, I also got a little lucky. <laughs> I know there is always a little bit of luck involved in everything that we do, which succeeds. But at the same time, there is a lot of, uh, you know, blood, sweat and tears that go into the work as well. So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, uh, under new management. I mean, uh, the concepts of um, uh, the book in terms of, you know, whether it is salary transparency or some of the other concepts. Uh, I've read a lot of blogs about it, uh, but I've not seen uh, such level of transparency or such level of adoption in businesses uh, uh, a lot of times. So what do you think um, uh, is the current status now? So do you think that the ideas that you share in under new management are actually now being put into use in organizations? And if yes, can you maybe pick the top two or three ideas that you think uh, were the most, uh, uh, most number one interesting or most uh, disruptive uh, in, a, in a way uh, that uh, you've seen people put into uh, organizations and succeed? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the goal of under new management was was kind of um, kind of a merging of that corner office ivory tower idea. So I had for the longest time read a lot of different pieces in a lot of business publications about different people practices that usually led by startups or tech companies, et cetera, but just different ways of managing an organization than the usual sort of inspired by Frederick Taylor idea. And so the big idea of under new management is that as the nature of work changes, as it's less and less about routine, repetitive work and more about knowledge work or even creative work, solving problems, coming up with new ideas, etc., the way that we manage people will also need to change because you're managing a different type of work. And then, uh, so that's the big idea. And then the book really dives down into each chapter is a different practice or a different policy from uh, various different companies. So like we said, salary transparency, but also um, putting employees first, even above and beyond customers. The idea of not having an individual manager in charge of hiring, but turning it over to the whole team. Uh, we looked at whether or not, uh, what's going on with dealing with email overload. We looked at open offices as a trend. We looked at all, all sorts of different trends in the workplace. And the, the goal was to pair each with the psychology research that shows, well, here are the context in which this is a, a really good idea. So in, in terms of what's been spreading, you know, every idea started with a little bit of a foothold. I've seen a lot of growth in a couple ideas um, in, the, in the past uh, two or three years since the book uh, was researched and came out. Salary transparency is definitely growing. We're seeing it um, not only I, my, what I'm pushing for is for the private sector, for entrepreneurs and business leaders to willingly adopt it. We're also seeing um, it become a favorable trend inside of uh, government regulations. So whether that's transparency in the form of having to report to the government what your salary bans are and how they break down by gender and, and race, etc., or whether it's pushing for things like um, uh, preventing empl employers from asking prospective employees what their previous salary was, which levels the negotiation field, et cetera. So we're seeing the growth in that. I'm really encouraged by the growth in um, a lot of companies. We wrote about unlimited vacation, you know, sort of popularized by Netflix, but practiced by a lot of different companies. And the, the gist of this idea is essentially the vacation policy is there's no vacation policy. Take what time you need, but we're not going to say you get X number of days in a certain year, use them or lose them, et cetera. And we're seeing that trend grow along with a trend towards um, paid parental leave, you know, so not just paid maternity leave, but paid um, paternity leave as well and adoption leave and et cetera. So um, I really think that that's growing because unlimited vacation is a really good way to solve that problem. There's a lot of different problems with paternity leave and getting it rolled out 
um, in the United States at least, because it's not something that's uh, beyond just some unpaid leave guaranteed by the government. So we're seeing a lot of companies move in, in that direction of unlimited vacation because it's easier to have that policy than to write out sort of specific policies. I'll be honest, though, the biggest trend in the in the book is that all of the practices and policies that uh, we profiled are really policies of elimination. In other words, there was something in the sort of bureaucratic rule book that was blocking people from doing their best work, and the leaders of the organization saw that and decided to eliminate it. And that is the trend we're seeing move the most often, that it, em, employers, senior leaders, employers are really getting an idea that their job is no longer to um, have employees report to them, but their job is to serve the front line and the individual contributors to make sure that they have everything they need to create as much value as they can. And that's a mindset shift that I really enjoy watching grow. And whether or not that turns into the practices and policies in our new management, that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is you've got leaders taking on that sort of servant mentality of our job is to get our people everything they need to do their best work. Interesting. And also the fact that, you know, ultimately it's the front line which deals with the customers. It's the front line which deals with, uh, uh, you know, complaints. It's the front line which deals, uh, brings in the revenue. So as long as you are able to uh, help them or clear roadblocks for them uh, and uh, uh, treat them with respect, fairness and uh, uh, as adults, so to say, I think they will respond in kind. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm a big fan of um, HLC Technologies under Vinet Nayir and the idea of a value zone. So it wasn't it wasn't just the front line, but the front line is the biggest piece of the value zone. But the, you know, the value zone is any place where there's an employee interacting with a customer because that is the face of the company. You might be a 10,000 person company, you might be a two person company, but whoever is interacting with the employee or with the customer you are the company to that customer. And so how you act and whether or not you're empowered to help that customer makes all the difference in the world and whether or not you've got a profitable long-term relationship or a one-off transaction. Interesting. So tell me how the shift from, you know, uh, writing under new management and uh, uh, friend of friends, uh, which is your current book. Uh, uh, and uh, you explained the through line, uh, but uh, you wrote the entire book and released it in under one year. Uh, which is uh, which should be a record by itself. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it, I definitely wrote the entire book in, in one year. It depends on um, uh, publication for under management. Might be a little bit longer than that, but okay. really, it was. Uh, every, I, I attribute some of it to intellectual ADHD, right? That I just have different interests in. And the the amazing thing, I, I'm so blessed in the world, and that what I get to do is sort of research ideas that seem interesting under the pretext of I'm going to write a book about it and I get to learn all of this amazing stuff and the only the only deal I have to make is to share my findings with readers right uh, and in, in order in, then I do that and they sort of support it etc I'm really blessed in my life for that for that reason but this idea the book the idea for this book really came to me during um, under new management in, in under new management we looked at a couple different network science studies as a way to um, show what's going on inside a large organization and I realized it was the second time, the first time being in this creativity, that I'd written about some of these researchers in this world of network science. And so I really just kind of decided to myself that once under new management was done, I want to take a deeper dive into studying networks and studying human networks in particular, but, but sort of all networks. And um, the first thing you need for that is you really sort of need to figure out what is the need. And so as I was studying all of this stuff, I realized the need is really this idea of networking and making connections. I mean, almost everybody, no matter what industry you're in, wants to have a better idea of how you connect with the people you need to connect to grow your career or to grow your business, whatever it is. So networks are hugely important and paying attention to your network and the network around you is hugely important 
At the same time, most of the prescriptive advice out there is is one person's advice. It's uh, this worked for me, and so you should try it too. And there's some great books out there. I mean, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and Never Eat Alone, and all. Uh, there's a lot of great books about networking and making connections, but they're all advice. And so the idea here was that advice is great, especially if you look, act, and work in a similar sort of domain as the person giving the advice. But if you don't, the advice is kind of useless because you're not that person, so your situation is different. So what we really sought to do was go, okay, well, Based on network science, there are certain things, there are certain principles that are universally true of human networks, no matter where you are in the network. So what if the, the goal is to teach better networking and better making connections through, through that social science so that you can arrive at something that's true for you no matter what situation that you're in? Because that's what we really try to do with Friend of a Friend. So each chapter looks at a different network science principle, some, some of which have been dealt with before, like the strength of weak ties and six degrees of separation. Uh, but others are really stuff that has been well-known inside of the niche of network science academic studies, but really affects how we think about our own networks and making connections. Um, and it's sort of new, fresh material in this world of this conversation of networking and making professional connections. So um, that's been the goal. Uh, initial feedback is really, really good, so I hope that that means that we uh, we hit it, but I'll be honest with you, I'm reserving judgment on that for uh, about a year or two out when we really see what the impact of the book has been. <laughs> I know, I mean, I got an early review copy, thanks to you for sharing the book. Uh, I read the book uh, twice, uh, just to be sure. Wow, <laughs> thank you for reading it twice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I strongly believe in is that, you know, uh, a book, uh, if you really want to understand uh, uh, what someone is uh, talking about in a book, uh, you need to read it multiple times. There have been books that I've read over 30 times. For example, Alchemist is a book that I've read more than 45, 50 times. Because every time mm. I read it, depending upon the uh, you know state of mind I am in, I, I gain new insights. The same thing with religious texts as well. Um, and with management books, which I like and which intrigue me or create some sense of curiosity, I tend to read them at least twice. Uh, so... Uh, some of the things that you've written in the book um, really piqued my curiosity and uh, made me uh, read the book, uh, the entire book, end to end twice. So the first uh, thing that really, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, intrigued me uh, was the principle uh, that you talk about in uh, uh, in the uh, chapter uh, uh, third, which is become a broker and fill structural holes. So unpack that a little bit, please, for us. Yeah. So. Um Inside of a network, so we, we think about, I mean, the first thing is that our metaphor of a network often, when we think about it for a professional network, is we think about it like a list of contacts on our phone. Rather than think about when you start to look at that you are in, rather than just a collection of people that you know, you start to see that networks cluster. It's not, they're not evenly spread, they're not purely egalitarian. Um, they, they cluster. And so what happens is that as these clusters sort of form where people with similar ideas who work in similar industries and have similar backgrounds kind of cluster towards each other, they, there's a tendency to create what the sociologist Ronald Burke called a structural hole, a gap between one group of people and another group of people. And you know, we see this a lot of times in a lot of the, the startups that really sort of um, bridge the gap are the ones that provide uh, a a broker between these two structural holes. So in the, in the book, I, I use a couple of different examples. One of my favorites is Jane McGonigal, who is uh, a video game designer who is working now with uh, psychology and medicine 
to talk about how video games can be used to help treat and heal uh, mental issues, stress issues, uh, th even physical health issues, which is really amazing. It only happens because Jane McGonigal took a step out and put herself as a broker between these two domains, right? And we see this in a bunch of different things. I mean, Uber, for example, is a is a you know, massive company now because they essentially brought uh, te technological advances to a really out of date industry, being the taxi industry in the, in the United States and the West. And we, we've obviously seen uh, some pushback on that for one cluster, but a tremendous amount of value created by sort of bridging that structural hole. And the same thing applies even inside of organizations. Um, most larger companies tend to sort of silo off and there tends to be all of these um, politics and turf wars, to use a Patrick Lencioni term, uh, that, that different factions of the organization kind of keep to themselves. And it turns out that the people who can bridge those gaps, the people who can uh, walk between two different silos, unlock a lot of value. And the, probably my favorite quote in that whole chapter isn't from me, but it's from Ronald Burt. And he says that the people who stand in the gap, the people who stand in the structural holes, have a uh, significantly higher odds of having great ideas. And there's a good reason for that. If all ideas are combinations of pre-existing ideas, then if you know what's coming out of multiple different communities because you're standing in the gap, you're going to have better ideas than the people who are clustered off by themselves. So you, you create a ton of value for the network by being a broker, and then a lot of that value comes back to you in the form of whether it be promotions or growing your business or, or whatever it is, a lot of that value comes back into you. I completely agree. I think uh, uh, if you look back at uh, uh, what we have seen around the world, uh, people who bring multiple, uh, you know, uh, either industries or multiple disciplines together and are sitting in the middle tend to uh, be the ones that actually create breakthrough uh, ideas and breakthrough organizations. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, uh, what defines these people? Why is it that they are the ones who are able to do this? Or let's say, for example, if as an, as an individual, I want to be that person who, who uh, is able to fill that structural hole. Uh, what do I need to do? What kind of skill sets, what kind of mindsets do I need to have in order to, number one, understand that there are these structural holes uh, and number two, to identify those um, uh, disparate, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, networks uh, and uh, connect them. Yeah. So, so uh, later on in the book, we talk about this sort of principle of homophily, the idea that like attracts like, and it's actually, um, it's a little bit like attract likes, and then it's a lot of um, a network structure. Once you start to sort of gravitate towards people who work in your industry, who think like you, who act like you, have the same background as you, um, as you get deeper and deeper towards people that are like that, the network starts to serve you new introductions that are already very, very similar. It's actually, it's sort of a downward spiral or, or an upward spiral, depending on your point of view. Um, it's sort of a downward spiral in that once you start moving, gravitating towards a cluster, there's sort of a pull and it makes it easier and easier to meet people who are similar and similar to you and harder and harder to meet those sort of new people. So the first thing is really realizing that, right? Doing an audit of who are the people that are around me, let's say the, the 10 or 15 people I interact with the most frequently and then how similar am I to them? If I'm very similar to them, then I'm probably pretty deep inside a cluster and I need to start taking conscious steps to work my way out. And now the hard thing is that if you're really deep inside of a cluster, you can't just ask for introductions to people who are in some other cluster, right? Because you don't know enough people. So some of it is taking a deliberate action. We're sort of forcibly going to another um, thing. I, I often encourage a lot of people to sort of crash a meeting of an organization you would never go to just to sort of learn a bit more about them and how they see the world, et cetera. 
Uh, and if you do that enough times, you um, will make d deliberate connections with those people. The other thing is to really realize that we need a little bit different approach to how we meet a new contacts. Most of us are sort of familiar with those networking events that we all hate. Um, and in those events, that same pull towards staying in your cluster um, happens. So a better strategy is usually to engage in what um, the sociologist Brian Uzi calls shared activities. And these are things that are not about meeting new people, they're about accomplishing some other mission. So it can be working with a nonprofit, but it could also be a, a, a sports hobby or any really any sort of hobby where the goal is the activity itself and where the activity itself draws a bunch of diverse people. And in, in focusing on the activity, you end up sort of mitigating the effects of homophily and meeting a lot of interesting new people that'll become your introduction to these new clusters and eventually sort of put you at the hole. I, I, I wish it was so easy as just saying like, oh, well, there's a gap and I'm going to go stand in it. But a lot of it is putting, is recognizing that you are not in the gap and then taking uh, some steps towards getting yourself closer to another group of people, another cluster. And as you do that, you will eventually find yourself standing in that gap. So uh, I think it also is all about uh, inertia and uh, self-doubt as well, right? Because uh, it is not easy to uh, go into a place where uh, uh, in a meeting where, you know, uh, there is a different uh, team sitting because, you know, you always feel that, you know, okay, what will these guys think? Um, will they think that, you know, I'm an uh, I'm a idiot or, uh, you know, um, they will throw me out or, you know, even if let's say, for example, I'm an IT guy and I want to understand finance, uh, I, I will be very, very, um, it will be very awkward for me to go and talk to a finance guy because there is no common ground to talk about. That is where I think um, the activity based uh, connection, I think is a brilliant idea because then you are introducing a constraint, which is, you know, the activity. Uh, and there is a shared love for the activity as well. And uh, by doing the activity, there is some common ground that has already been created, which can then flourish into, you know, okay, uh, both of us love uh, cooking. So what else do you like to do? And then, you know, kind of uh, 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 you can open up a little bit uh, and uh, the possibility at least of uh, building a connection or building a relationship exists. Otherwise, I've seen people trying to do this. I've seen sales guys trying to uh, network with finance guys uh, because they want to sell to them uh, or because they want to understand that function better so they can sell to them uh, better. Uh, but uh, without having a common ground, without having common understanding at all about something, uh, it's just a disaster. Yeah, I know. I, I totally agree. It's it's a well. I won't say it's a disaster. It's difficult, right? And the for to use the salespeople as an example. Uh, a lot of times the problem is that there's an immediate agenda instead of an sort of an exploratory one of just, I want to know more about this community and then how can I potentially meet their needs rather than I want to know more about this community so that I can figure out the right words to use to get them to buy my thing, right? Um, and so that's a very, very different approach. And the other thing is there's a sort of, there's a network trick to this too. Um, different chapter, different principle uh, known as uh, multiplexity and really shared activities kind of help in this regard. What multiplexity is about is it essentially says that people build a deeper and um, a deeper relationship faster with people that they have multiple different contexts in which to discuss. Right. So work is one context, but then there's also, you know, what does your home life look like? Maybe you worked with this person, but you, your kids also go to school together or you attend the same uh, a church or temple or whatever it is. Right. There's there's multiple different contexts in which we interact with humans. But our natural tendency is to put people into buckets to think, OK, this is a work only context. I'm a salesperson. They're in finance. 
right? And not to think about, well, maybe we both have a shared love, maybe we both love cricket, you know, whatever it is. Um, so there are other ways, if, you, if we're taking a broader approach, there are other contexts in which we can sort of first build the relationship with, build trust, and then we can ask sort of more open-ended, more exploratory questions and be welcomed as we're trying to figure out this other cluster, rather than just be seen as that salesperson that's just trying to make a sale and they're not interested in me as a person. They're interested in knowing what words I use so that they can use them to try and get me to buy stuff. Interesting. So in the same chapter, you also share the story of uh, the Native American uh, Sequoia. I don't know whether I'm performing, uh, whether I'm pronouncing the name right. So can you share that story as well? And uh, uh, where and how did you come across this uh, uh, story? Yeah, so I mean, I, I actually I live quite close to where the uh, Sequoia's tribe is now. Um, their, their base, um, their headquarters, their capital, if you will, is Tahlequah, Oklahoma. I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it's one of those stories that you sort of always know. It, interestingly enough, it was a very late addition into the book um, because mostly we were looking for another answer. So Sequoia was a Native American. Sequoia worked um, in and around a, a lot of uh, settlers, a lot of white folks and worked as a silversmith and saw really this fascinating thing. I mean, it's almost hard in, in as literate a society as, as we are in now, it's almost hard to visualize this idea that he's working as a silversmith, but he doesn't, his, his tribe does not have a written language, they have a spoken language, obviously, and then he sees English. And over time, he's realizing that these settlers can communicate with each other without actually talking. They can just scribble down symbols on pieces of parchment and communicate with each other. And, and as he learns what that is, he starts to realize, well, wait a minute, this is an idea from a different tribe of people that would really, really benefit my tribe. And so he sets about, is really one of a few examples in history of a written alphabet being created by just one person. But he sets out to bridge this gap between and bring this skill from one cluster to another. Um, interestingly enough, uh, as often happens, this new idea is not necessarily welcomed. He actually gets put on trial for witchcraft uh, from his own people until he can prove to them that, no, this is what we've created and why. And it really unlocked a, a tremendous amount of value in that it, it, it provided a skill that his tribe did not have that uh, the Western settlers you know, did have and allowed the, the tribe to sort of interact with them better, to trade better, etc. And really was one of the reasons that tribe is in, in where I am in Oklahoma, we have this reference of the sort of the five civilized tribes, which is a really kind of an offensive term, but it basically is a judgment of who were the more technologically, literarily advanced um, tribes as Europeans were settling uh, the continent, and Sequoia is the whole reason, really, that his tribe was considered to be one of those sort of civilized or more advanced tribes, and one of the reasons for their uh, success and existence even today. Interesting. I also feel that, you know, you are also um, one of those uh, people who uh, 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 identifies clusters and kind of connects through clusters. Uh, you take, uh, uh, you know, information and uh, knowledge from uh, disparate uh, uh, fields and uh, bring that to a totally different field. So do you agree with uh, my my uh, thinking? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So I, I, I don't know that I would have used until a couple years ago when I'm familiar with this research, I, I don't know that I would have used the structural holes term or the broker term, etc. But you're exactly right. That's always been the goal. From the time I was at university and sort of started to read the first uh, the works of the first brokers between social science research and practice, um, you know, to, so uh, to use a great, probably the most famous is like your Malcolm Gladwell's, but Chip and Dan Heath and Dan Pink and a, a lot of people now are in that space and we need as many voices as we can because there's a lot of good stuff that's coming from social science that takes a while because it's written in jargon, it's, it's almost written in another language 
often. It needs to be translated. It needs to be brought over to that. So yeah, I've, I've, I mean, I've bet my whole career on that idea that these are two clusters that need to interact more often. And so we need to build as many brokers between them as we can. But the question then to ask is, uh, why is it uh, that academicians use language that uh, business guys can't understand? You are an acad academician yourself as well. So if you can write such beautiful uh, books, uh, sharing stories, uh, then why can't other academicians write uh, similar uh, papers? So I mean, it's it's a question of jargon and language and also a question of incentives. Uh, we'll, we'll start with incentives first. Um, most academics, if you're thinking of just growing your career inside of the academy, then all you have to do is impress a very noble, right? So the people who are deciding your promotions and the people deciding your tender, tenure, they don't necessarily care about something like I think being ranked by Thinkers 50, right? They, they care about where are you publishing and are other people citing your work and how influential inside of the community of other researchers are you? And that's all that matters for, for growing your career and being successful, right? The other thing is jargon, and there's a very there's a good reason that different clusters develop their own sort of shared language. Is that there? Once you get a community of practice, a cluster of people, you need sort of more refined language. You need to be able to um, define things in terms that the broad level of the entire society doesn't necessarily need to know, because you're never going to have that conversation except inside that cluster. So over time, you develop these sort of new ways of using words and and new words, and you develop this kind of jargon that if you're not in the cluster, you don't understand um, how that is spoken, etc. So it's, it's a mix of um, predominantly incentives. There's really no incentive in academic life to be interacting with practitioners all that much. But the other thing is that because it's a very clustered group of people, um, they they speak and use terms that practitioners don't necessarily know. And, and my thesis is don't necessarily need to know because the broader, more general terms matter more. Mm, interesting. So in the same chapter, you also talk about a quick exercise um, uh, as well to figure out whether someone is a bro uh, broker or not. Can you just uh, share that as well? Yeah, I, uh, I have to pull up my own book to make sure I get it right. Hang, on, hang with me um, one second as I, uh, as I do that because I don't want to give you the, um, the wrong piece of advice. I'm pulling up. The, we have a workbook that we have for anybody that uh, orders the book and registers, and that's a shortcut to the, to the activity. I want to make sure I get it all right because I've got to also describe to you the worksheet to do it in. So uh, the, the biggest thing is figuring out, right, are you, um, who are you interacting with most in your career? Mm -hmm. And are you interacting with people from a diverse set of industries? So what I encourage people to do is you, you can do this. We, we have this worksheet and workbook um, that has these three columns, but you can do it yourself. Basically take a, a piece of paper and draw three uh, vertical lines, create three columns going downwards. And in the leftmost column, list um, 10 to 25, you know, 12 or 15 is fine too, but list somewhere somewhere in double digits, the number of people who have been most influential to your career. So this is providing guidance and advice. This is making you aware of job uh, openings, the people you work most closely with on projects, etc. So fill, fill that out. Um, make a list of those people. And in the middle column, who introduced you to those people? In other words, how did you get first connected to this person? Right. And then in the final column, any list anyone that you've introduced that person in the first column to. Right? So we have one column of names. Uh, of people that I interact with most. And then we have two columns next to it that are, how did I get connected and who have I also connected to? And the thing to do is to pay attention to recurring names. So if you you fill out this whole list and there's one person's name that appears multiple different times, 
in multiple different contexts, connecting you to new people, but also you're connecting them to new people, etc., then the chances are that that person is actually the broker for your network. They're the one providing new opportunities and new information, etc. Um, on the other hand, if the majority of your third and final column, in other words, sort of um, who uh, who is uh, who are you introducing other people to? Then again, the odds are good that you are not that broker. Um, so if you know that, right now you know you can start to be a little bit more deliberate, right? If that third column of people you're connecting other people to is really, really full, then the chances are that you might be that broker. And so that's good. Re regardless, you have a really good idea of sort of where you sit inside the cluster. If there's a strong diversity of names, then you're on the periphery and you're more likely to be discovering those uh, opportunities to be a broker. If there's a lot of the same names, especially in the second uh, column, and that name is not you, then the odds are you're actually very deep inside of your cluster, your, your community of practice for your industry, and we need to take some steps to get you connected to a, a bit more diverse set of people. Interesting. So again, there is a, uh, you as with everything else uh, in this world, there is a flip side to the, uh, of the coin as well. So you share the story of the Italian glassmakers. Uh, can you share that? And uh, you know these are these seems to be two sides of the same coin, and something that people need to navigate as well. Yeah. So this is so this is what's interesting, right? You can you can leave that chapter, everything we've just talked about, and and really believe that okay, well, what this means is that um, clusters are a bad thing, and I need to have a strong diversity of people. But there is a reason we as humans have developed our networks this way. Um, and the reason is that to some extent we need clusters. We need communities of practice where we can have that shared language, right, that I was talking about earlier with academics. Um, we need that. There's been several studies that show that a society needs that because ideas need to spread from cluster to cluster. They don't spread sort of egalitarianly through a whole network all at once. They move from community to community. So we need those kind of communities. The trick is knowing um, how often we need them. So I, I use this example, and, and um, Stephen Johnson was the first one that made me aware of this example, and he writes about it probably far more beautifully than I do. But he talks about this interesting thing that happens in Venice. And essentially, Venice is known for its glassmakers, but the interesting thing is for, the, for hundreds of years, its glass blowers, its glass makers have not lived in Venice proper. Um, and the reason is that making glass, you have to have a lot of heat. <laughs> And when you're a series of wooden structures built over a canal, having lots and lots of heat can also mean fires and burning the whole sort of city down. And so eventually the city of Venice decided that we're not happy with these people. We love their trade, but we're not happy with the fact that often they burn the whole city down. So they moved, they, they forced all of these glassmakers to move to Murano, a short little series of islands just across a canal from, from Venice. And, you know, you would think if the lesson from the previous chapter is that clusters are always a bad thing, you would think that this is bad because of making it harder to fill structural holes. It's making the structural hole bigger, if you will. But the truth is there's a benefit to being in a cluster. And so the, the, the practice of glass blowing and making, uh, whether it be vases, whether it be beads, what, whatever it is, the practice grew and really exploded in creativity and in opportunity and in value because of this cluster. Because what was happening is you had a cluster of community practice that you could work with um, to learn technique, and then you would sail across the channel, and to sell, you would have to be interacting with a different group of people. And so the trick really is, it's, it's not just about being a structural whole and not finding a home in either community, it's about being able to go to a community of practice for a time, benefit from the shared language, for benefit from sharing knowledge and growing uh, and sharing ideas, 
and then bringing those ideas somewhere else. So the trick is to sort of vacillate between a cluster and a, and a community that sort of needs you. And again, to go back to Jane McGonigal, she's actually a great example of this. It's not that she feels unwelcome in the world of video gaming and in the world of medicine. It's that she has, has penetrated both clusters and she can come to both uh, for a time. So the, the trick is to learn who is that community of practice that I need. You know, entrepreneurs need other entrepreneurs to discuss a bunch of different issues with, but you can't just hang out in, in entrepreneurship conferences all the time. You'll go out of business, right? So you need that community, but then you also need to break away from that community for a time. I actually think the best metaphor, it's not in the book because I didn't think of it until afterwards. Now, the best metaphor is that these clusters ought to function like a, the way that a ship in a harbor works. A ship in a harbor is safe, it can be rebuilt, it can be reloaded, it can get, get lots of all new things that it needs for a journey, but it can't stay in the harbor. There's no value created by it just staying in the harbor. Eventually it has to sail out, and that's when it creates a lot of value, but it also refuels and, and repackages value when it's in that harbor. The trick is not to be in the harbor all the time. Very, very nicely said. Uh, the other <clears throat> uh, uh, analogy that I could think of uh, is like, uh, you know, uh, heartbeat. So, you know, you need to expand contract, expand contract, you need to move between one to the other and on a regular basis so that, you know, you don't get too attached to either one of those communities. So you cannot stay in one uh, place for too long. You need to go to that place, go to that network of uh, or communities of practice, as you call it, and then move out, then come back and move out, come back and move out. And if you can do it with a regular frequency without getting attached to either either one of the communities, uh, that's when the uh, true uh, trick is. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, exactly. It's a good analogy. Yeah. So tell me something. Um, uh, we um, one of the things that I have noticed, uh, uh, whether it is uh, in your writing, whether it is uh, uh, Stephen Johnson, whether it is uh, Dan and Chip Heath, whether it is Dan Pink. So all of you guys take some uh, interesting research that is being done and um, uh, you know present it in <coughs> such beautiful stories. So one of the things that most entrepreneurs also struggle with is to be able to share such beautiful stories. So what have you done to learn uh, the craft of storytelling uh, despite being in the uh, academic um, world where you know you could easily fall into uh, uh, as you uh, said earlier uh, you know the uh, the uh, you know curse of knowledge so to say. Yeah, so I, I'll be honest, this is where I have a little bit of a, an ace up my sleeve, a little bit of a trick in that I was an undergrad English major. So I, I came to university thinking that I was going to be a writer, just thinking that I was going to be a novelist, right? And and then when you discover, I mean, you're 19 years old, you don't know anything. Um, when you when you get there and you discover that there's far more genres than just fiction, right? And the, the, that you, you go into university thinking the dilemma is, am I going to be James Patterson or Ernest Hemingway? And then you realize how many other genres there are that you could, you could work in. This is the one that I was sort of really attracted to. So some of it is, is that. Um, the other thing is really, I think, uh, all, of, all of us, you know, I can't speak for, for Malcolm, Stephen, and Dan. I can maybe speak for Dan. Um, all of us have adopted a way of sort of really collecting stories. It's not a matter of sort of telling um, and writing down stories well. It's a, it's a matter of staying, kind of having a broad... Um, scanning of the environment and collecting stories as you find them. So I have, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a great example. So I kind of, I have different tools like Evernote, et cetera, to, to do this, but I'm always sort of trying to uh, keep track of when I hear a good story that I think relates to a, a study that I've read or something like that, I'll try and file it away. So a great example of this, the Winter Olympics just uh, wrapped up and uh, Team USA won the gold medal in curling. 
right? Now, this is interesting for myriad of reasons. One is that more Americans like to joke about how boring curling is than actually support it. So it's amazing that that Team USA won. The, the other thing is that I heard this story about um, the, the team that actually won, the team captain and all of the other members. Essentially, Team USA had struggled with curling for a really long time, and so the governing body, USA Curling, decided to, to do a little bit different trick. After the uh, 2014 Winter Olympics, they basically decided, you know what, we're, we're going to develop this high-performance program. We're going to find new talent and, and cultivate it for four years and get it ready to then go to the Olympic trials and then go to the Olympics. And they told basically every member, including the former team captain of the 2014 Games, that you are not welcome here, right? They, they, you're not in this high-performance development plan. So the, the team captain goes and collects basically a team of other people who've been rejected from this high-performance development plan, and they start to train themselves. They adopt the name Team Reject because they were all rejected by USA Curling. They start to train with themselves. They start to work very closely. They go as a team to the Olympic trials, and they win the right to go represent the United States. And, of course, if you're USA Curling, right, you are thinking, oh, no, this is going to be a disaster. And then they go win the gold medal, right? And so, uh, you know, this is just a, an interesting example. And in, in my mind, I'm reading it, and I'm thinking about um, some research from a, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Thomas Roulet in, in Britain, who does fascinating studies on or has done fascinating studies on when um, communities, when businesses feel like they it's them against the world, when there's negative press, but it's seen as a way of like, well, they don't really understand us. And that's why they're resisting our idea. It can have a galvanizing or a motivating effect on the actual team. I mean, it's, he does studies that explain why Team Reject was so motivated to win after being rejected by the rest of it, right? So, so this to give you an example, I don't know where that's going to go yet. That that might turn into a book, it might not. But the idea is you see, you're reading these studies, and then you sort of collect these stories that happen over time, and you file them away, and maybe they become useful, and maybe they become not. But the other thing is that, again, the way that you do that is you have to fill, you have to be in a structural hole. You can't just be in the academic world. You also have to be constantly up on what's going on in business literature and other other domains so that you can you can connect those two things. Um, I really shouldn't have tipped my hat on this idea because if I do use it, I, I've just, this is the first time I've talked about it publicly. But um, there we go. Please don't steal my idea, anybody who's listening. But beyond, <laughs> beyond that, um, that, that's how it, it sort of works, right? So you, you kind of collect those, those stories by being um, a structural whole. Now that said, I, I can't speak for how Stephen or Malcolm works, et cetera, but that's been kind of my trick is just to be always scanning for those stories and filing them away and hopefully they're useful later. Interesting. So one of the things that um, uh, I, I had a conversation with a guy called Harold Jarki and uh, uh, he has this blog around uh, personal knowledge mastery and he talks about this uh, framework called seek, uh, 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 seek, sense and share. So he talks about the same thing, you know, you need to have your radar on and uh, find uh, stuff that is interesting uh, and you know what he Else, which is different here is you know you inter in in order for you to internalize it you first uh, you know uh, read it uh, you understand it and then you share it with someone in order for you to internalize the story itself so by the act of telling the story or sharing this information with someone you are actually able to internalize the story much better than you would otherwise is his in is his contention yeah, I mean, I love that. I, another sort of another way to say the, the same thing is um, 
James Altucher, the podcaster and, and author, turned me on to an idea that actually originates with Frank Shamrock, who is a mixed martial arts fighter, retired mixed martial arts fighter. And he calls it the principle of plus minus equals. In other words, in your life, if you're looking to develop, then you need someone plus, someone who can add and teach you things, someone equal, someone who is walking in the exact same spot along the journey as you, and someone minus, someone who to for whom you can teach the things that you're learning from the plus, because you can't master them until you can sort of teach them, right? So so same idea that you you find it's finally complete and you finally internalize this lesson when you move all the way through plus minus and uh, plus equals and minus. Interesting. So that's that's a very very nice way to put uh, 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 the entire. Uh, you know, uh, journey of uh, someone who's wanting to constantly grow. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. And again, it, it, it I, I mean, I hate to be so self-promotionally. It, uh, it speaks to the importance of understanding your network and who's connected to who and, and all of that. Yeah. So tell me something. I mean, we are getting close to the time that uh, we have on the show. So if you were to, uh, you know, uh, address a, a group of entrepreneurs and you had, let's say, three to five minutes uh, to give actionable advice based on the research and the stories that you've put together in your book, what would you ask them to do after listening to this conversation? Three to five minutes. Uh, I mean, I hope I hope that they buy the book in triplicate, but really, I mean... I mean <laughs> Uh, really, I think the biggest thing is is a, a mental model that needs to change. This is the biggest thing you can do to help, which is to move away from the idea that when I say network or when I say connections or contacts, don't think of a list of people that you know. That's good, but that's only one element of the network that you're in. The better mentality is to adopt that you exist inside of a network already and that your job is to act accordingly to navigate that network, to figure out uh, that network so that you can provide the most value to it and then in turn it will provide you the most value. So that I would, I'm going to just actually leave it at that because that mindset shift will make all the difference in the world in terms of what actions you take next. That is very, very nice. So uh, let's just shift conversation to a, a set of questions that I ask all my guests now. So first one is, uh, have you recently changed your mind about something or belief about something? And if yes, um, what was the belief and what, what made you change the belief? So, I mean, I'll, I'll guess I'll share one that's been um, sort of high profile. So I came out uh, at first when I was researching salary transparency, um, I was, I, the idea made me really uncomfortable and I get that, right? It's, it's uncomfortable to share what you make with other people. Um, and then doing the research, I came out very, very for, you know, everybody in a company should know what everybody gets paid. Um, the truth is over time and interacting with, again, with practice, right? So taking the research to practitioners, you find that in reality, a little bit more nuanced approach um, happens. And so I originally thought that like practices, I, I actually spoke about this earlier, practices by um, company, by lawmakers preventing companies from uh, asking employees what their uh, past salary was, prospective employees what their past salary was, would help and all of these other things. And, and the truth is, it's a very sort of nuanced thing. And what I am sort of now in favor of is a much more democratically chosen, inside of a company voluntarily chosen process, because I'm seeing the, what, the benefit that happens when a company decides to do it internally versus when uh, lawmakers or regulators decide to have it done to them. And you see a much quicker adoption in that regard, right? So I won't say it's a complete 180 degree turn, but it's, it's definitely been a mind change in what I need to be advocating for, which is not, hey, by any means necessary, let's make salaries more transparent because that just creates a lot of backlash. It's that, hey, there's real value for an organization to pursue this. And so I want you as, as leaders of an organization to voluntarily adopt this idea. 
Interesting. So the second question I have is that uh, is there any resource which has deeply affected you uh, uh, positively, of course, uh, which you would like to share uh, with uh, with our audience? Uh, it could be a piece of art, book, documentary, movie, whatever, outside of your work, of course. So uh, probably, I mean, outside of religious texts, one of the most recommended books that I tell people to read is uh, Roger Martin's The Opposable Mind. And Roger is a brilliant thinker. He was the dean of the Rotman School of Business in Toronto for a really long time. Just a, a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And The Opposable Mind is really about the people, especially entrepreneurs and business leaders, the people who create sort of the most value in an industry are the people that can hold two mental models in their mind at the same time. And so, I mean, to give you a quick example, Roger uses the example of the Four Seasons Hotel, which is a high-end luxury hotel that also tends to feel like you're at home, right? It's not the Ritz-Carlton where you feel like everything is white glove service, high, you know, stuffy, almost elitist um, service. And, you know, those are great. I love the Ritz-Carlton. But the Four Seasons is going after a little bit different thing. They want you to feel at home in addition to feeling well-served. And those previously were ideas before the Four Seasons sort of came out that were uh, seen as contradictory. And they, as a company, figured out a way to sort of blend the two. Now, the, the cool thing is, so I, I often recommend the opposable mind. The cool thing is, um, Roger finally listened to me. That's not true. He probably listened to most of society saying, hey, this is great, but we need the instructional. And so he and a couple colleagues recently wrote a new book called Creating Great Choices, which is the prescriptive. It's the instructional on how to adopt an opposable mind. So um, I would actually recommend to people both. The opposable mind is sort of the what, and creating great choices is the how. Super. So is there anything that um, uh, you researched and you... Uh, uh, wanted to have in the book but did not end up in the book uh, that you would like to share with us? Uh, well, I wish I would have known the story of Team USA Curling before, but it hadn't happened yet. <laughs> um, um, I'm, I'm actually trying to think, you know, interestingly enough, this time around, uh, often in writing there's a book that, uh, there's a chapter of the, of the book, etc., that gets cut. This time around there was one that was sort of on the borderline, which is the chapter about building teams from all over your network instead of staying with the same trusted true people. Um, at first, I was thinking maybe that doesn't need to be in there. And then I kind of had a mindset shift on this book that it's more than just sort of a career guide. It also should be a manual for leaders, for entrepreneurs, for, for everybody to go, here's how networks work, including the network inside of your organization. So um, I, I would have answered that had we decided not to go, you know what? Okay, let's let's put it in there. It might, it might. if you picked up the book expecting a career guide, you're also going to get a leadership manual. And if you picked up the book uh, looking for a leadership manual, you're also going to get a career guide. And so um, that's been a, a big benefit sort of, of it. It's a little bit, makes it a little bit disjointed in, in what I was thinking, but I'm glad that we decided to keep it in. I know that's the opposite of uh, the question that you asked, but that's the best <laughs> I can offer. Interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the last question that I always ask uh, all my guests is the show is called Pushing Beyond the Obvious. So what do you think is so obvious, but people miss all the time? That the other side is not evil. Um, so I live in the United States. Is We are in one of our... We go through cycles of being incredibly politically polarized and incredibly united. And we are currently at the peak of a cycle of polarization. And one of the things that you see is you, if, you're, if you're hiding in your cluster all of the time, then you don't know enough about the opposing side to uh, attribute positive motives to them. You just assume they're wrong, and the reason that they're choosing to persist that they're wrong is because they're evil. 
In reality, they have a different way that they see the world, and they're doing what they believe to be the most moral, the most right, and the most useful um, thing. They just have a different perspective as you. And so um, I know that we, this is one of those things that I know that we say and we try and teach our kids it, but the truth is we're all really bad at this, myself included. And so I'm trying every single day to remind myself that the other side is not evil. They just see the world differently, and then they're trying to do the best that they can um, to create value for the world and to serve the world and make a more moral world based on their worldview as well. And this is useful whether you want to adopt a more centrist approach or whether you want to persuade the other side to come to your point of view. Nothing useful happens until you can adopt that mentality that the other side is not evil. Interesting. So, uh, so what do you do to ensure that, you know, uh, or at least try uh, to not have that kind of a view? So, I mean, I, um, I have to remind, I have to remind myself of this every single day. The, the truth is I'm, a, I'm in a little bit better position than most people. So I grew up in New England, which is a very, very democratic, very liberal, um, very blue, as we like to say, part of the United States. Um, and now I live in Oklahoma, which is a very red part, very, very, very conservative, etc. And so because of that, if you think about networks and structural holes, etc., I sort of have a brokerage between these two communities um, as a whole. And so the biggest thing I try not to do is not get lost to one cluster or another, not to observe that pool. And so I'm, I'm uncomfortable a lot because I find myself interacting with people who are on the opposite pole um, or who are in the center when I'm not or I'm in the center and they're not, whatever. Uh, but I try and deliberately resist that uh, that uh, pull of homophily to just be in one side or the other. And it's been hugely beneficial for me living in those two different um, worlds, having friends and childhood acquaintances and this whole sort of story of growing up in one part of the country and then living in the other has been hugely beneficial. Interesting. So uh, thanks a lot, David, for uh, uh, talking to us. Uh, uh, please let uh, listeners know where they can uh, find out more information about uh, your books and about all the other stuff that you do, uh, including your podcast, your blog and all of the others. Yeah, so I, the, the absolute best place to go is davidburkus.com. Uh, B-U-R-K-U-S is the last name. I'm fortunate in that I have a really awkward name, and I'm one of only a few David Burkuses in the world, which means I usually get the right domain name uh, quickly. So davidburkus.com is the best place for, to go. From there, you can find out more about the book. we got a ton of free resources on that site. So if you don't want to check out the book right away, you just want to learn a bit more, ton of free resources on that site, one of which, is, as you said, is the, is the podcast. So encourage you to check that out. I would love to have you. You are If you're listening all the way to this, you're part of a very special end of the podcast club for this show. And so I want to invite you and reward you with that by coming over. Enjoy some, some free resources on me at davidberkus.com. Super. So thanks a lot for taking time and talking to us. Uh, have a great day. Uh, thank you again so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pushing Beyond the Obvious. If you like the show and would like to support, please head over to iTunes or wherever you are listening to this show and rate us and write a review. Till next time, have fun.